Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Perkins Platform. This is a solutions-oriented podcast and live radio show. Each broadcast, we dedicate just about 30 minutes to explore topics of interest for leaders and professionals in education and a variety of other disciplines, and this is your host, Brian Perkins. So, I'm, folks, I am really excited today, as usual, um, and I have a great guest with me Excited to talk to him today, um, actually an, an Emmy-winning filmmaker, an author, an activist, um, and he is the son, actually, of a civil rights icon, uh, uh, Joan Trumpower uh, Mulholland, and um, I just want to introduce to you uh, uh, Loki Mulholland. Welcome, Loki. Well, thank you for having me. So glad for you to be here. You know, uh, for those of you who m- may not know your work, you know, uh, Loki has received um, 40 telly awards and um, and has received, you know, just countless other accolades. And, and as I understand, uh, Emmy, is that correct? Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, uh, the uh, uh, Emmy. So yeah. we're going to, yeah, we're going to hear all about these and um, has doing a lot of work all over the country on issues of race and social justice. You could really say that it's in his blood because um, it, is, it is such an honor uh, to, to have you um, um, with the work that you're doing with the, the foundation named after your mother, Trump, uh, Trump All uh, Mulholland Foundation, and its goal and its mission to create an end to racism through education. So um, a lot of the people in the audience are involved uh, with education and and social justice. And so I'm sure they're as equally excited to hear from you. Um, one other thing that I'll just add for the, you know, for some of you others that I'm also uh um, proud to to say to Loki that uh, you know hands down he is a member of of what must be the second greatest Black Greek letter um, organization. Um, he's a member of Omega Psi Phi fraternity. Undoubtedly, one the got to be the second greatest. Um, and uh, so he he knows why he knows why I say that. I'm skipping my chapter meeting for this. Oh, <laughs> no, I appreciate it. But um, so, again, welcome, Loki. Tell tell me a little bit about your work. I mean, I know um, you're, you're leading this, uh, the foundation. Uh, tell me about the work that mm-hmm. you're doing. And, and certainly, uh, I, it's no surprise that you are engaged in this work uh, because uh, of your mother, and and so I'd just love to hear what exactly your, your foundation is engaged in. Yeah, well, you know, again, as a member of Omega Psi Phi Fraternity Incorporated, the, the greatest fraternity organization in the world, um, I, I, I am the founder and executive director of the Joan Trump Power Mulholland Foundation, and, uh, which uh, was started to preserve, share, and continue my mother's legacy. Um, and to, to teach kids about the civil rights movement and how they can make a difference. And that uh, expanded through, through documentaries and books, uh, curriculum, 
and uh, a new, actually our newest thing, the DEI, asynchronous DEI training platform mm. uh, that mm-hmm. we launched a couple months ago mm-hmm. uh, for organizations and individuals alike that incorporates all these different films and stories and kind of under the umbrella of my mother's story because it's this really unique story of this, this, this southern white woman who saw what was wrong and decided to do something about it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. because of that, um, you know, she was disowned by her family, put on the Klan's most wanted list, hunted down for execution, put on death row. Mm-hmm. And the list goes on and on, but she persevered. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's a telling example of, of, of what we all can do if we just decide to do what's right even when it's not easy. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, you know, how how old was your mother when when she was uh engaged in those uh those protests throughout the South? Well, you know, she was she was 19 years old. She was 18 years old when she got started in Durham. Uh-huh. However, that's not really when her story starts. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the the, the misnomer. Does everyone see those photos of the Freedom Rides and the Jackson yeah. where we're sitting and such, where they're pouring the stuff on her head? Um, but really, it's when she's ten years old, mm. and she's a little girl going down to visit grandma in Oconee, Georgia, this old logging town, not that fancy resort they have there now. And she sees uh, the black schoolhouse, right? The schoolhouse for black children. It's a one-room shack on stone piles, and right out of, you know, you'd see in a Hollywood film, no glass in the windows, no paint on the walls, you know, just outhouse out back. And this was in stark contrast to the brand-new post-World War II brick building that they built for the white kids at the front of town. And she just, she said it just rattled her soul and and said, this is wrong, I'm going to do something about it. As a 10-year-old, that's, that's when it really started for her. Yeah. When she got yeah. the opportunity. She acted on those convictions. Well, you know, I asked the question because I'm sure that, um, you know, you probably go into some of this in your book. Um, and so there's a book, for those of you listening, that Loki wrote called um, She Stood for Freedom. And that book was nominated actually for an award. And so mm-hmm. you, you just got to, I, I mean, I'm just so um, appreciative of you taking the time to come and share a bit with us. But I asked the question about her age specifically mm-hmm. because, you know, there, there've been so many people who talk about leadership and when is our next leader going to emerge? And then they look towards, you know, kind of the 40 and over group. And right. what I've said among my colleagues yeah. and among my friends, I said, if you look historically at mm-hmm. who has made the difference, it has been young people. And I'm not talking about, you know, like just college, right out of college. Uh, Martin right. Luther King Jr. was 18 years old. Um, right. You know, so many people, you know, they were 19 and 20. And so that this spark, and I say what I really believe is that the life energy required to actually make change is what you have when you're that age. Like once you, you know, you're 25 and 30, you're over the hill by that time, you know, to when you start talking about what's required. So I, you know, I'm just really struck by you saying that she, she recognized this as early as 10 years old. 
Right. Yeah. Well, you know, and remember, you know, those, even at 18, 19, 20 and such, I mean, these were kids. And let's just be fair. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, we're talking like, you know, obviously, you know, John Lewis and my mom and Diane Nash and, and, and the like. I mean, you know, at that age, one, you don't have a lot of responsibilities because you're just in college. Yeah. And two, you, you actually yeah. you think you're immortal anyways. Right. Yes. Yes. Um, and you actually you actually believe you can make a difference. That, yeah. That's not to take away from from folks who were older, who had a lot more responsibilities, um, who couldn't directly be involved in the fight and get arrested for the fear of losing their house, losing their job. How are they going to mm-hmm. take care of the, you know, the little ones mm-hmm. and so forth? So yeah. um, there's a lot of repercussions that come with that. And we all face that uh, in our daily lives as well. Right. Do I speak up at work or or you know, how do I manage this without being singled out and maybe losing my job? And, those cascading effects. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, you know, I you also. Lou Hamer, mm-hmm. right? Mrs. Yeah. Hamer. Yep. Um, That's right. You know, she That's was right. not one of the young ones and she did get, get kicked off, you know, and out of her house and so forth, you know, the sharecropping home and yeah, and look how far she went. Yeah. And, and, you know, the thing is, is that though there were tremendous implications, I'm sure she had to think about that too. Um, so your point is not lost that, you know, right. for, for for Hamer, um, as an example of making that decision, making that choice, because you do have to think of other people's lives, um, especially how dangerous it was. You know, I'm, I'm yeah. from that, you know, a region not so far from Jackson, Mississippi, in Alabama. And so I, I, mm-hmm. I know um, that I hear stories that you know, aunts and my, you know, certainly my mother and father told me um, one thing that I, I did want to point out for those who are listening that may, um, may, you know, view TikTok on occasion. It's not just silly stuff, but I know that mm-hmm. I've, I've um, you know, saved you as, as someone that I um, hear <laughs> from. And, and so I watch these TikToks and some of the places you've been, just to say, and I and I I just thought it was so well done. And your point was, you didn't have to go into a lot of detail. Just by you, you went to those sites. And so, right. in fact, you know, I've been to you know where um, not Emmett Till, but where Mega Evers was. But but right. when you went to the place where Emmett Till was killed, it just resonated with me. You know, just that that just to be able to see how, you know, lonely and cold and, um, and, and, and dark the place was, you know, just, it just speaks volumes. And then you also Uh, went, yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm thinking I I was, when I was there, as you said, I was thinking the same thing. That's in 2022. I mean, how much, how, how much further isolated was it in 1955? That's right. right. That's right. Yeah. 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 So, so tell me a little bit about your book. Um, so she stood for freedom. Tell me, so basically overall, I want people to certainly uh, 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 buy it, but tell, tell me a little bit sure. about it. Well, so, so the book um, happened because we did a documentary um, about my mother and the student movement called An Ordinary Hero. And we did screenings of it, and one of the screenings we did was at Ole Miss. Um, and, and mind you, Ole Miss is where James Meredith, you know, integrated mm-hmm. Ole Miss. And mm-hmm. 
<laughs> I said myth. <laughs> yeah, the southern myth. Um, but uh, and then Kennedy had to call in what twenty thousand troops, you know, for one student to go to school. Um, but we're there, and we're showing this film, and afterwards, students, I mean, this college-educated kid came up mm-hmm. and was like, we never learned any of this. I'm like, how is this possible? I mean, like, I'm thinking to myself, like, well, look, 70% of this movie takes place in your state. Surely you must have learned some of this. And, I, and then, right. of course, the knee-jerk reaction after that was, well, it's Mississippi. They're not going to learn any of this. But what mm-hmm. I kind of find out, no one's learning this stuff. So I just, That's right. That's right. It, you know, Dr. King had a dream, you know, and rose us out on the bus. Then now we got Obama and we move on, right? It, it's that sort yeah, of mentality, yeah, yeah. and it's 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 so much deeper than that. We 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 were making the film, and we have this image of the burning bus of Aniston, where they bomb the bus on Mother's Day, yes, and close the church down so that they people could bring their families so their children could watch the Freedom Riders burn alive on Mother's uh-huh. Day. Uh huh. Um, and I remember. My camera crew, they were college kids. And one of them said, so where was this? Was this like South Africa or something? <laughs> I'm wow. like, what? Yeah. yeah. Like, wow, this is why we need this. But what I quickly realized was that obviously educating college kids is important, but we need to start younger. And that's where the emphasis came to create these, these particular books called mm-hmm. There's actually two of them for two different age sets. Um, uh, when we get adults, we love buying them because they're one's a beautiful art book and the other, you know, just a little meatier. And we actually have a new book coming out in March um, called "Get Back to the Counter," and it's um, mm. seven leadership principles from a civil rights icon. And mm. so it, it distills my mom's stories into these seven principles of leadership and, and life. Mm-hmm. And so that'll mm. be coming out in March. And and the name of that um, again? Get back to the counter. Get back to the counter. Okay, I have to be sure to look we out were, for that. Uh, yeah, we're getting ready to, to get ready for pre-sale on Amazon uh, next month. So, awesome, awesome, and and you know you you raise a point about mm-hmm. um, people not learning about this. I mean, I can tell you without a doubt. You, I mean, you you hit it right on the head that you had Martin Luther King had a dream. You had Rosa Parks on the bus. And little to none, and I'm talking about formally. And so right. you know, the, now informally, you know, whether it was at the churches, I know certainly for mm-hmm. me, it was a church um, that we would have um, during Black History Month mostly, but um, we, we learn uh, about what, what happened. Um, but, you know, there, there are a lot of people who where events happen right in their own towns and would oh, say, I didn't know that happened here. I mean, my town as well. And there were things yeah. that would happen and we'd say, I didn't know that happened right there at that spot, you know? Um, and, and it's, it's shameful that it, and is it's, but it happens everywhere. But to your point that no one is learning about it. I'm really glad to hear the work that you're doing um, is to uh, highlight some of that. And then I know the other one that um, is one that appeared on Showtime and some other places was The Uncomfortable Truth. And I know that one has received a lot of attention. Um, mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about that one. 
So the uncomfortable truth is about the history of institutional racism in America, so how we got to where we are. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it started um, because of Luvon Brown, who's a freedom writer from Mississippi. Um, and before the camera crew showed up during the filming of An Ordinary Hero, he said something to me that just, I mean, I, I, I heard it and I, I understood it. But it wasn't. I, I had. I, I couldn't leave it alone. I was like, I gotta. I gotta understand what this really means. You know, I understood it on a surface level. But I was like, wait a second. There's something else going on here. And he said, everyone knows where the drugs are, but you'll never see a SWAT team raid a university. But you'll always mm-hmm. find them in the hood. Mm-hmm. Now why is that? And I was like, dang. And so I started to find out why, and you know, dug into that history. And I got to a point in, in making the film, and I'd already done a couple of interviews for it and such and was writing it, and I just, it just felt like it was something that anyone else could do. Um, you know, it, was, it didn't have anything personal or – I didn't feel like a real story to it. Mm-hmm. I told my mother. I said, you know, Mom, you know, I, I'm, I'm not going to make this film. You know, she's, and she's a mom. She's like, no, you've worked on it so hard, you know, and just keep working at it. So, I, I, you know, I was like, well, I'm just going to pray about it. Right. And, you know, what should I do? And the next day, my wife and I are for a walk. I went out for this walk. I know exactly where we were, you know, what happened. And, you know, for me, you know, the spirit said, check your family history. Hmm. And when that happened, uh, a story that my grandma, I hadn't thought about in 20 years, that story my grandmother used to tell us flooded right back to my memory. And the entire film played out right there in, in an instant. And I turned to my wife and said, the movie's done. Mm. However, the next day as I was thinking more and more about it, I said, well, that wasn't a check. That was a memory. Mm-hmm. So I really did a dive on our family history and found out that we, we came to Jamestown in 1610 on the Hercules. And we served in the House of Burgesses. We helped start the whole thing. Hmm. And this historical arc that lands with my mom and Luvon Brown mm-hmm. uh, becoming friends. My, and Luvon said my, my mother is the first white woman he ever trusted with his life because he mm-hmm. grew up when Emmett, you know, when Emmett Till was killed. Right. Um, he knew what would happen. Um, so this this film becomes this journey of him telling. American history from his perspective and me talking about my family history through this and this connective thread that ends up, you know, how our families could work together to fight this injustice. And yet it was my family that helped enslave his, right? Mm. Um, And where does that lead us to today? Yeah, that's, that's a powerful, um, story and a, you know, a real serious reflection on, you know, kind of your own family history. Um, and which, which, you know, really leads me to think about, you know, the reason I, I asked you to come on, on uh, the show was because I did want to talk about, you know, kind of like the whole concept of institutional racism and, you know, I have a few questions about, you know, kind of like what you're encountering 
but um, from you know from your perspective, describe. So what is it? What you know? I, a lot of times, I think with uh, with some of this, we assume that people have a real strong uh, concept of what these terms are. So I, I first, right. I'd like to give you an opportunity to define it and you know give some examples, and then I I have some questions because I I think. Um, you know, there are so many um, ways yeah. in which we don't we don't explore this. Yeah, uh, it, it's you know, you know, first <laughs> as, as a white person, you have to first overcome the idea that when someone says white people did this, they don't necessarily mean you specifically. Right. 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 And white people, you know, we do that. Well, like we take a very, oh, I never owned anybody. Well, I'm glad you never did. I'm, you know, thank goodness. That's not mm-hmm. what this is about. Mm-hmm. I get that. You know, I hear that a lot. Right. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not about what you didn't do. It's about what you're doing today with the knowledge that you have. Right. Mm-hmm. But institutional racism, I mean, America was founded on some really, you know, some, some pretty, you know, lofty ideals. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, mm-hmm. right? Um, and we've we've worked, you know, uh, worked to strive to progress towards that more perfect union ever since then. However, that being said, the fact of the matter is, it was created for one group of people and one group of people only. You know, white men, and mm-hmm. in, in particular, property-owning men. And that slowly expanded over time to allow for white women and the like. Uh, everything else has been a, everything has been afforded to us, um, us meaning whites, because mm-hmm. when, when they you know when they say you know take back our country, we know exactly what that means. Because yes, they really believe it was theirs because it was theirs, despite the ideal of what was being espoused. Now. To be fair, um, you know, at the signing of the Declaration of Independence and so forth, there was a big question that was brought up. Can, should we even have slavery and so forth when we're saying we're the land of the free? And it was decided, you know, this compromise at the expense of African-Americans uh, that, yes, we can mm-hmm. uh, you know, mm-hmm. continue to have slavery. And it was institutionalized, codified into a constitution mm-hmm. that said, Blacks are not human. Mm-hmm. Neither were the Indians, by the way. But that's, I mean, so you're starting at the base foundation of racism. That's what the country was founded on, this, this foundation. And the structures are built on top to support that. And mm-hmm. they get dismantled and pieces of that are rebuilt and rebuilt. So you have from slavery to Jim Crow to you know, the colorblind society, right? Mm-hmm. And so ev- everything fits into that. That doesn't mean everyone is a flaming racist, right? Running around with torches and, well, some of them do run around with tiki torches in, in Virginia, but, uh, you know, wearing hoods and burning crosses, that's, that's not the type of racism we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a reflection of that institution that allows for those things to happen allows that to exist to maintain that order. Mm-hmm. But 
permeates everything we do from housing to work to, I mean, even uh, even the biases that exist when you are reviewing a resume. Black-sounding names are 50% less likely to be selected. Mm-hmm. Just based on the idea of that name sounds a little too black, so and thus we know that Oh, uh, that, that you know, if, if it sounds that black, it must be ghetto. There must be something about that name, so they're not going to be a good fit for our organization. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. just just being honest, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, you know. Let me let me tell you. Yeah, let me tell you. You know, um, I, I've certainly heard what you what you mentioned about people saying, "Well, I never owned anyone," or "I never did that," um, and. And I've also heard people, you know, kind of rebut that by saying, look, like you said, it's not about what you did, but you also are a beneficiary of those practices and those policies. We can't, we can't, you know, you can't divorce yourself from, from what has put you, you know, like that has put you, put you ahead. Yeah. But, but we want to, but we need to remove the idea of privilege being money as well. Uh, Yes. Yes. Because that's not what that privilege is about. Mm-hmm. Um, the privilege, you know, kind of think about it uh, from the standpoint of like not having to experience what everyone else does. You don't have to experience those hurdles to get that job. You don't have to experience the biases and so forth because it's all structured around you. I have a friend, uh, you know, I, uh, my ADP. Um, he uh, passed the Marlon Lynch III. He's a former football player. Mm-hmm. Big guy, right? big black guy. And every time he gets into his car, he has to look to where he put his wallet. Yeah. Not because he took too many shots to the head, you know, playing football, because he wants to make sure it doesn't look like he's reaching for a gun. Yeah. Now, when I get into a car, all I do is reach for my seatbelt. I don't have to think about anything else. Mm-hmm. That's privilege. Yeah. It's nothing I did to earn it, you know, to benefit from it. But the fact is, is, matter is that it's there. Yeah. And if we truly believe that we should, you know, treat others the way we want to be treated, and that others should be treated the way we're treated, right? Then we would want to afford that to everybody, mm-hmm. if we're being honest. And that was the driving force of my mother. You know, people, a lot of people ask, well, well, you know, why did you do it? Well, I asked her once. I said, you know, why you? She said, well, why not? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, what makes you so special? And she said, absolutely nothing. I just saw something was wrong. I decided to do something about it. But yeah. her governing principles was what she learned in Sunday school. You know, mm-hmm. the, the, the golden rule. and Love thy neighbor as thyself. She says, all that good King James stuff. She goes, I just actually believed it. She said, and I recognized that we were hypocrites. We would say one thing in church. And live something else entirely different. We would say one thing when it comes to the Pledge of Allegiance, right? I love picking on the Pledge of Allegiance. Liberty and justice for all. Well, man, you just made a pledge. You made an oath to your country that you were going to stand for that. Mm-hmm. What, are you, what are you doing for it? Right? Yeah. And the, and the beautiful thing is today, you don't have to go through what my mother did to work towards that a fraction of what she did and we would all be in a better place 
Right. And so, so going back to this, the whole idea of institutional racism, though, is that so we have these these underlying practices in just the way, mm-hmm. not only the things that we do, but this is part of what I try to explain to some people. It's also in the way we think. Now, you don't have yeah. to be you don't have to be white to be kind of the perpetrator of institutionalized no, no. racism, right? And so everything else. Yeah. exactly, exactly. Well, no, and you I know, mean, look, the fact yeah. of the matter is, is, is we all live in America. We're all mm-hmm. fed the same diet. My mother still has to work on her biases from people like, you yeah. know, there's statues for goodness sake. Absolutely. It's like, well, people are like, why is that? Well, because she, she's 81 years old. She grew up in America. What she does is say she actually, when something comes to mind that's contrary to her belief systems and uh, her way of thinking, you know, that, 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 that knee-jerk reaction, that thing that causes you to tighten up a little bit, she stops mm-hmm. to analyze it and go, okay, why did mm-hmm. that happen? What was I thinking? What was, you know, she, she takes the time to, you know, to work on those isms. Yeah. Uh, it, 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 it takes effort. It's too easy for us to brush it off and go, oh, I shouldn't have thought that. Oh, that was, you know, and then move on because it's, it's still there. It's, mm-hmm. it's an active pursuit of wanting to change. And that's the same thing in organizations uh, as a whole. It's not enough to be performative and go, hey, look, we're going to bring in the speaker for Black History Month and look at our website. You know, we look diverse. You know, we're going to say the, the right things, but we don't actually do anything internally that really affects change. And so I know we're running out of time, but I, I want to get your advice. You know, so as I told you in the beginning that, you know, mm-hmm. this site, a lot of people listen to the show that are um, leaders or aspiring leaders in education. Um, what advice mm-hmm. do you have um, for confronting um, institutional racism, like say at the, you know, say at a school level, because, you know, a, a, a number of people now are having to worry about their jobs and otherwise, because, you know, places like Texas and Florida have actually mm-hmm. made laws um, that, that prohibit um, the discussion of things like, so, so they've, they've, use CRT. So the critical race theory right, right, equals, right. Yeah. equals a discussion, a historical discussion, you know, about right. institutionalized racism. That's critical race theory now. Right. Um, and so what advice do you have uh, about people? I always tell people, try to do your piece. And so right. what would you say the piece that schools can be working on? And obviously, they're not going to solve it. But what is the piece that they can be working on that will at least contribute um, to eradicating institutional racism? Um, you know, the, the term normalizing comes to mind because because of those very battles you're talking about, like in Florida and such, where you can't identify the race of a person. So you can't even say that the people who killed Harry and Harriet Moore was, was the Klan. You can't even mm-hmm. say that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's crazy. Well, mm-hmm. of course it was the Klan. We, we know this. But um, it's, so, it, it's teach American history the fullest part of that history and, and normalize things for, for everyone. 
uh, it's, it's not just for uh, you know the black kids or Hispanic kids or, or whomever to see themselves in that history. It's that the white kids see those positive examples as well. Uh, because there, there was uh, someone said to me the other day, said, you know, the war, the war that's being waged against racism and white supremacy needs to be white on white, not black mm-hmm. on white. Mm-hmm. And so it's incumbent upon us to speak, to to show other white people that look, uh, it's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's that's the the, the power of my mom's story. Mm-hmm. Here's this, this 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 white woman who could have gone off and lived the Southern Belle life and chose a different way, and and we're all better for it. Mm-hmm. But we need to continue to show that example um, and be that example. That's our hashtag: is be a Jones, right? Yeah. Um, but Thank you. Just kind of a different way to be able to try to do that when you are faced with the opposition of you can't say this and you can't say that. Okay, well, right. I'm gonna, you know, show this and yeah. normalize that for for kids to such an extent that it's just that's just part of their life and it doesn't seem, you know. So when someone says something, you know, horribly, like, well, wait a second, I, that's not what I know because in the back of their mind they know they have all these positive examples they can point to mm-hmm. because they're gonna get educated the wrong way whether you do anything or not. It's not enough to say I'm not racist. You need to be anti-racist. Mm. Mm. And that's critical. And we all have our ways of doing it. And my mother said, I'll leave on this note here, and we're running over time, but she said, I can't do everything, but I can do something. Because mm-hmm. doing nothing is not an option. Yeah. Yep. I we agree. Thank you. Something. Yeah. Thanks for that. So listen, tell tell us how where where do we look? I know you you talked about your your upcoming book. It'll definitely be on the pre-order on my my uh list. Get back to the counter. Um but tell us about um how people might you know follow you. I know you've been doing yeah. big a lot of things on uh the only thing I really <laughs> kind of look at on is on TikTok, believe it or not. Um, I don't post, but I, I certainly watch. Um, but uh, tell people how to reach you, any any tag names or anything like that you want to share, where they might reach you and follow. Sure. Sure, you can follow. I mean, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, it's all Loki Mulholland. Just my name. Um, I have a website, LokiMulholland.com, but uh, the foundation website in particular, the JTM foundation.org T-H-E-J-T-M Joan Trump Power Mulholland foundation.org and that's where you know you can find us for you know all the stuff that we have plus you know you need speakers you need training the new DEI stuff that we can do and one of the things we're doing as well is that this year because it's the 60th anniversary of the Jackson sit-in and all these events is that we are combining that speaking opportunity. So, hey, we want you to come and speak. Well, great. Well, we're going to combine the DEI program with that because it's not enough for us just to come and speak. That that, will make people feel good. But what's the work afterwards? And that's where the training comes in. So we're like, we're just going to combine that. You guys, we're going to flow right with it. So it's a unique opportunity that Awesome. Awesome. That, so that's the, the now what, right? That's the, you, that's the you heard what, yeah. me, now what? Yeah. It's actually one of our yeah. courses. 
<laughs> Excellent. Well, listen, thank you again so much for um, giving of your time and, um, and all the work that you're doing. We'll certainly be following. And um, I'm hopeful that, um, you know, our paths cross uh, somewhere in, you know, if you're in New York City, definitely don't hesitate or New Orleans, uh, look me up. Um, would love to, um, you know, to uh, host you at some point at, at the university. So let's be in touch. And uh, until, we, until we do get a chance to uh, uh, be in the same place, go well, stay well. Thank you. And remember, D9 is still all family. That's right. <laughs> Take care now. <laughs> If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.